Good morning. My name is Dan. I'm one of the preachers here, and it's my privilege to open God's Word with you. We're going to be in 1 Timothy chapter 5, which is near the end of your Bible, 1 Timothy chapter 5, and I'll give you a minute to get there. It'll be up on the screen, though, if you're interested. What's the difference between a restaurant and a family? What's the difference? This is one of my favorite um, metaphors in that. In a restaurant, you know, what happens? You go in, everybody treats you typically like royalty, depending on if you uh, order at a counter or not. We'll pretend you're sitting down. Um, you know, you go in, you exchange pleasantries with the, the waiter or waitress. You probably don't really get to know them. You order whatever you want. You pay. You tip according to the quality of the service, and you go back if you like it enough. And if you don't like it, you don't go back, and you tell people to, to avoid it. What happens if you? Um, what happens in your family if you don't like the food? <laughs> A child would say that, wouldn't they? Uh, what happens if you don't like your family? Are you allowed to leave? You're not supposed to. You're not supposed to. There's a big difference. At a restaurant, there's there's zero commitment. And in a family, you're you're actually bound there in in spite of your differences. Is the church like a restaurant or a family? Which one is the church more like? Or I should tell you, which should it be more like? The church is a family. But most times, its members have almost nothing in common apart from Jesus. Almost nothing in common. Another way of saying it is, I say this graciously, like if it, if it weren't for Jesus, we probably wouldn't hang around with each other. We probably wouldn't. We have a lot a bit very different from each other. So it's, so it's messy, but we're united by something beyond us, something stronger than a last name, something stronger than even an earthly family. It's messy, but Jesus promises it's going to work. So how does how does this family behave, and what do we do when we get dysfunctional? How do we fix that? That's what we're going to talk about today. We're continuing through the book of 1 Timothy, as Paul teaches his young apprentice, Timothy, how a church should behave, especially in terms of dealing with each other, working together. So we'll first consider this family, church family, from a big picture perspective, and consider how are its members unique yet united. And then we're going to see the work cut out for this family by way of five short case studies of people in this uh, in the in the church that Timothy uh, was leading, the Church of Ephesus. And we're going to connect that to Jesus. And then we're going to apply that to, to Grace Fellowship Church of State College. So I will start with uh, chapter five, verses one and two, and this will be your first point. Church family members are unique and united. First two verses. Paul writes this. Do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father. Younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters in all purity. So what Paul's saying is every Christian falls into one of these four categories as a member of the family. Your father, your mother, your brother, your sister. There's a uniqueness, though, to these roles. I'm not just trying to corral you into four neat categories. 
There's a uniqueness to these roles. For example, verse 1 says that we should encourage and not rebuke an older man. And this is because of God's design. There's, there's a thread all throughout the Bible of respecting fathers and mothers. Now I'm going to point out, though, that this is not saying a church should assume that its older members don't sin. That's not what it's saying. Paul is saying that how God has uniquely designed roles should inform the way that we talk to older people in the church when we perceive a problem. But we should say something. So the older folks in this church are compared to mothers and fathers. They're guiding the direction of the church. Meanwhile, younger men and women are to be treated as brother and sister. They're to be raised, in a sense. So their role in the church family might come with less authority, but they're each unique members of the family. For example, this is one of my favorites, younger women, which appear here to mean unmarried, I think that's what, what Paul's getting at, they're to be treated, Paul says, in all purity, and I would say especially by their brothers in the church. One of the best words I've heard on this subject is this. Men, especially young men, prepare the sisters in your church for marriage, even if it's not to you. I'll, I'll say that again. Men, prepare the sisters in your church for marriage, even if it's not to you. The restaurant mentality says, man, I'm a good church, and find me a lady. Let's <laughs> prepare the women for marriage. God's family is called to cherish the younger women here the same way a good family would love and protect a daughter or sister. You get the big picture. It's a family design. So now that I've unpacked what Paul is saying, I want to point out the difficulty in obeying this standard, and then I want to shift our minds and hearts to how Christ fulfills this standard as we view family. So first, the difficulty. Most of you know by now that you did not grow up in a perfect family. And the added difficulty is that the family you grew up in, the biological family, is going to influence the way you view your church family. For example, if your dad was abusive, and you're a young guy, you might come into church and you see old men as enemies to conquer. Or, you know, I'm not going to take that guy seriously. What's he in it for? Or you might see them as totally intimidating, depending on how you responded to the abuse. This was Timothy's issue. He had a hard dad. And so he was meek. He struggled to speak up. Now, I'm not going to ramble about how, I'm not going to ramble on about how messy this can get. I think we all have experience. We all know what that's like. We all know kind of how our family has affected the way we view church family. But I do want to now point you to Jesus because he can actually change how you see your church family. Here's why. Jesus was the perfect family member. He lived in a perfect submission to a perfect father. In fact, even in the garden when he was soon to die on the cross, he actually spoke up and he said, Father, if it be your will, 
If there's any other way, yet not my will, yours be done. He had a voice, but he respected his father. And even more, his, his sinless life was for the sake of our purity. He didn't live with that restaurant mentality. He said, I want to die. I want to give everything so that these people who are not in the family because of their sin, that they can be in the family. So he is our unity as a family as we work together. So let's now talk about working together. Point two. The church family's work and rewards are really about Jesus. There's work we do in the church, there's roles we have, and there's rewards that we get, and they all point to Jesus. And there's, there's so much to cover here in these verses. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to briefly hit each of the various church members Paul is addressing at the time of the Ephesian church by explaining their work as part of the family. And I'm going to talk about the difficulty of that work. And then I'm going to talk about how Jesus is connected to all that. So as you read this, please don't try to just cram yourself into one of these categories. There's five of them. This is not exhaustive. This is not exhaustive. This is, this is the church body that, that Paul and Timothy were ministering to. It's a different church. You may fit into one of these categories. But I'd encourage you to think about the other people here as you read this. Think about the people in this category and how you can better care for them. How you can know them more. So I'm going to first read about the three types of people Paul is addressing. The three out of the first five. And I'm going to address them in one big chunk of text because they're all kind of squashed together. So I'm going to read chapter 5, verses 3 through 16. And I'll talk about the, the first three types of people Paul is addressing and how they work together. Honor widows who are truly widows. But if a widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show godliness to their own household and to make some return to their parents, for this is pleasing in the sight of God. She who is truly a widow, left alone, has set her hope on God and continues in supplications and prayers night and day. But she who is self-indulgent is dead even while she lives. Command these things as well, so that they may be without reproach. But if anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Let a widow be enrolled if she is not less than 60 years of age, having been the wife of one husband and having a reputation for good works, if she has brought up children, if she has shown hospitality, if she has washed the face, the feet of the saints, has cared to be afflicted and has devoted herself to every good work, but refuse to enroll younger widows. For when their passions draw them away from Christ, they desire to marry and so incur condemnation for having abandoned their former faith. Besides that, they learn to be idlers, going about from house to house, and not only idlers, but also gossips and busybodies, saying what they should not. So I would have younger widows marry their children, manage their households, and give the adversary no occasion for slander. For some have already strayed after Satan. If any believing woman has relatives who are widows, let her care for them. Let the church not be burdened so that it may care for those who are truly widows. So in your outline, you notice those first, I kind of gave away the first 
three people. The first is older widows. So what's their work? What's their job? Their job is to persevere in faithfulness and good work. Let me talk about faithfulness and good work. Look at verse 5. This is faithfulness. She has set her hope on God and continues in supplications and prayers night and day. And all I'm saying there is that she's faithful to God. She's made that her practice. And then look at the end of verse 9. She's also has been the wife of one husband. Or in other words, she has been faithful to her husband. So she has this reputation. Secondly, she has a reputation for good work. So verse 10 says, if she has brought up children, I'll say if, assuming she has. If she has them, she has brought them up well. If she has shown hospitality, uh, also in verse 10, there's a lot of examples of that. Hospitality, you know, good works and, and washing the feet of the saints and all that. So just think about a generous person who's cared well for her family and is now left alone. And um, even we can say, as a result of verse 10, the character quality is that she's not lazy. She's devoted herself to every good work. But as we see in verse 5, she's older. She's likely retired. So she's full of good work, maybe a different kind of work. Maybe she's probably sitting down a bit more these days. But she's doing good work. And she has done good work. What's the difficulty of this job for the older widow? I mean, I can only, I can only guess how hard it would be as, as culture shifts, as your body breaks. I mean, we're doing this share time and how many people are talking about sickness? As you get older, just like sickness is kind of normal. One comedian said when something breaks, it just kind of stays that way. And, um, but the job is don't give up. But if she gives up, or as we read in verse 6, she is a widow who is self-indulgent. She is dead even while she lives. That sounds harsh, but here's what it means. She's got issues that the fleeting security of money will not fix. If you write a check for her, it will not help. She's got deeper issues. But what's the reward if she does do this good work, if she is that faithful widow? Verse 9 says she is enrolled. The church takes care of her. If she has no other family, they are. I can only imagine the comfort of these words. that they, the, the comfort they would bring at this point in history when the government did not offer any assistance to widows. If you did not have family or husband, you were done. The church says, no, you're not done. We'll take care of you. That's quite a reward. How does this connect to Jesus? How is this our motivation as we deal with people? We shouldn't just resolve, I'm going to be nicer to old widows. Now, here's how this connects to Jesus. Jesus himself said, I will never leave you or forsake you. 
Jesus offers everything to people who have nothing without him. This financial support that a church offers is not just a check. It points an old woman with no husband to an eternal husband who owns all things. Next category, blood relatives of those older widows. So think about the family of these qualified older widows. Their work is to care for the widows among their family and not abandon them. They shouldn't just dump her on the church and leave. What is the difficulty of this work? Oh, you guys, but as, as a relative, it is easy to give up on a family if they linger on as a burden. As they get older, they break down, and you visit them, and then just after a while, you're like, man, I'm just tired of visiting. You just kind of give up. As church members, the difficulty is different. We might not even be taking the time to know how the families in here are going. There could be a family struggling with it, and you don't know. Especially the older widows. They often do not have much of a voice. It's hard enough for them to talk and hear in some cases. Are they being taken care of? Even in Acts chapter 6, the very first church issue was, guess what? Neglecting the older widows. It is a big problem. So the text is understandably harsh here. Verse 8, to fail at this is to be worse than an unbeliever. God forbid we do this. But what's the reward for the good work? In this case, family, as we read in verse 4, makes some return to their parents, for this is pleasing in the sight of God. In other words, Mom, as you helped me to survive when I was dependent, I will do the same for you. When we bring honor to our parents by doing that, that honors God because it shows his design to the world. This is how family should operate. And how does this connect to Jesus? Again, Jesus cared for the least. He died for the least. That's us. People who he wants, who he wants in the New Testament, called children of the devil, his enemies. So again, we were not his relatives, yet he died that we might be in the family, and even more so, that he would care for us to the grave. Next, younger widows. This is a very, probably much more of a smaller Smaller category. Their work is to keep working and prove their faithfulness. In other words, they're kind of applying to be older qualified widows. They're practicing. Their job is, in verse 11 and 12, to not abandon the faith. Specifically, to not be idle or gossip, but rather to quietly remarry if possible and continue serving and raising children. Verse 13. What is the difficulty of that work? Where do I start? Now, let me first be clear. I do want to be clear here because this is really sensitive. The text is talking about a widow with no children. A widow with no children. A widow with children? She's busy and you should help her a lot. This is a widow with no children. Think perhaps of uh, 
faithful woman in the church whose husband served in the military, and he does. Something like that. Or a husband who's killed and a widow is left with, with nothing. Her difficulty is the temptation to lose sight of her calling as a helper. In other words, her difficulty is just to lose sight of the mission and it gets sidetracked with other stuff. Paul writes so strongly here. He uses some really harsh language. Because this exact thing is going on big time in Timothy's church. Younger widows are actually fraudulently on the welfare system of the church. So they're effectively stealing from the older widows who are too nice or don't know enough to say anything. And beyond that, they're wasting time. They're actually reinforcing a lot of the bad church teaching that we read about earlier in the book. They are on course to becoming disqualified older widows. And so Paul says, no, we've got to do something about this. But I want to say in the difficulty of that work, it is easy to do that. And we should not ignore sympathy. When deep loss happens, when you lose a spouse, especially, like I said, in a climate when you would not have government assistance, it is so easy to lose sight of the mission. It's easy. But we as a family can come around those people. What is the reward for their good work if they stay on mission? Paul writes they can learn godliness through remarriage, through children, or just service. And they can become faithful old wives and moms or faithful widows. They can graduate from young women to old women and do it with grace. So how does that connect to Jesus? Well, they may have lost their earthly husband, again, but they can have the hope of an eternal husband in Jesus who will never leave them. Two more people we're going to cover. First is elders. I'm going to continue reading verses 17 through 25. Let the elders who rule well... Oh, by the way, this is not like old people by elders. I mean authoritative men of the church. Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. Now the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. Do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all so that the rest may stand in fear. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of the elect angels, I charge you to keep these rules without prejudicing, without prejudging, doing nothing from partiality. Do not be hasty in the laying on of hands, nor take part in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. And then he notes, no longer drink only water, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. The sins of some people are conspicuous, going before them to judgment, but the sins of others appear later. So also good works are conspicuous, and even those who are not canning remain hidden. What's their work? What's the work of an elder? There's a lot of weird detail at the back end. I'll get to that. Paul's already talked in the previous chapter about preaching and teaching, so I'm not going to go on about that. 
The work here is caring for the congregation by doing four jobs. There's four jobs you might have noticed. First, verse 22, take care in selecting elders. Paul says, do not be hasty in the laying on of hands. In other words, take the time to know and select qualified men. Take your time. Secondly, verse 19, take care in handling charges against elders. Sin is true, like we said. Sin is possible among older men. But slander is also a very real thing, especially in this church. Not this church, I mean the Ephesian church. (laughs) Paul simply asked for witnesses in handling cases justly. He wants a fair trial. Third, verse 22, keep yourself pure. Don't give people ground for even false accusations. So that even if those false accusations show up, they just blow away. I won't go over it in detail, but that, that this is what the, those strange last few verses were about. Paul, because of his timidity and he had various health issues, Paul was instructing Timothy in those following verses to use wine sparingly for the sake of his health, for the sake of his stomach, to help him sleep at night, but don't be lumped in. Because there were some alcoholic older men in the church who needed to be spoken to, not harshly, not rebuked, but gently drawn out, gently chastised for what they were doing. And Paul is saying, look, be careful in drinking this wine. You don't want to get lumped in with these guys. You're not like them, but you don't even want that false witness. But yet Paul says, two to three witnesses. We want to make sure to handle this justly. So that, Timothy, you can take care of your health issues while also making sure you're not even appearing disqualified because of this situation involving older men. And finally, the fourth job is rebuke people who persist in sin. Verse 20. The goal there is simply to show them their sin, frankly. To speak about it. To address it. And to make it clear that they are in danger. What is the difficulty of being an elder? Paul is telling Timothy to be very careful to promote and to stand very ready to demote. That's hard. Let's be honest. It is far easier for a church to promote somebody very quickly out of ignorance or out of fear. We need a guy. Let's pick this one rather than diligently take the time to select quality men. And so the standard will just tank. And that's what's happened in Ephesus. Paul is saying, take time in selecting, take time in handling accusations, take the time and precaution to keep yourself pure, but yet be fierce and diligent in defending the church from flagrant sin. It is so easy to do it the other way around, isn't it? So what is the reward for this good work? Double honor, verse 17. Especially for those who preach and teach. Luxury is not implied here. These men are likened, they're compared to oxen. You know, you're not going to fleece that oxen out in a Rolls Royce. That's not what's going on here. But here's what's happening. Make sure your elders are taken care of. 
So many pastors and elders just burn out. How does this connect to Jesus? Jesus was the chief elder. He knew the heart. He didn't even need a witness. He led perfectly. He led with no hint of sin. And yet, he was falsely accused and convicted. You might say, the oxen that got no grain, instead he got the slaughterhouse. And so as Christ was honored, resurrected at the right hand for leading the charge, so also is the high standard of excellence, of high accountability, of the elders, a reflection of that. They're just trying very hard to look like Christ. Last category, it's in verses 1 and 2 of chapter 6. Bond servants. I'll read that. Let all who are under a yoke as bond servants regard their own masters as worthy of all honor, so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. Those who have believing masters must not be disrespectful on the ground that they are brothers. Rather, they must serve all the better, since those who benefit by their good service are, be- are believers and beloved. So briefly, bondservant here actually means slave. But not in the way that you might think when you hear the word slave. That's kidnapping. That's not what I'm talking about. This is more like indentured servitude. Somebody, somebody paying off a debt. Or somebody committed fully to a cause without pay. Somebody who's given their life towards a particular vision. And it's of low esteem. It's in a sense the opposite of freedom. And Romans would have hated this. Yet, a third of the people reading this letter were likely bond servants, slaves. People paying off debts, devoted to volunteer positions. I actually think many of us probably fit into this category. Anyway, the, the work of this group is to, do, is to simply do this. Verse 1, honor their masters. Number 2, serve well. And you'll notice whether their master is a believer or not. Serve your master cheerfully. What is the difficulty there? It is hard to work joyfully as a slave, isn't it? It goes against the American dream. The American dream is to get out of it as fast as possible and acquire that wealth and to complain about your employer and the system and the man holding you down. What is the reward, though, for doing this good work? Working cheerfully and well. Verse 1 says, this work brings honor to your earthly master, and ultimately it brings honor to God. When Becky and I got married, we had about $80,000 in college debt. Every month, every tax rebate, for the last seven and a half years, we've been chipping away at this thing, and in about a year, it should be dead. Here's the point. I signed the check to Wells Fargo. But it's really for the Lord. And when I fail to believe that, I will either grit my teeth as I write it or I won't write it. 
because all the money is his. How does this connect to Jesus? How does the work of a bondservant connect? Nobody accepted the role of bondservant like Jesus. He who created all things was put under earthly masters, and not just that, but terrible earthly masters. But with all confidence, he knew his father was in charge. So he worked like nobody else. So in short, a slave for Christ is more free than a wealthy unbeliever. You can find glory even in that daily work. Do you see how in all these five case studies, Christ must be the motivation? That's why our application is not just, I'm going to resolve in 2018 to be nice. That's not it. Because if Christ is not our motivation, our family will now be about our individual glory rather than the sake of the family. And our Father, the Father of this family, the Heavenly Father of this family, is due all the glory. Okay, let's wrap up with just a couple of applications for our modern family. And I'm going to keep it brief and let you focus on this in small group time. Number one, love your church members as family. Love your church members as family. If you're biologically, if your biological family are all believers, that's great. You have two families. That's cool. But if you, if your biological family is not, and God is your father, this is your family. Don't see the people here as just acquaintances or even friends. Don't stop there. Take the time to get to know your family, especially, I'll add, those different from you. And I'd like to take a minute and give a shout out to that sharing time. You now have something to talk about with a few people while you eat donuts or fruit or whatever we're having this week. Application number two, honor, honor the true widows among you. I'll just simply say, if you're an older widow who qualifies for help, speak up. If you know any older widows here who qualify for help, speak up. Number three. Hold your elders to high standards and high rewards. Two quick thoughts that might actually encourage you. We've actually taken some really good steps here in the last few months, I think. The elders. I'm not an elder, but I'm working with them. And I've prepared an application form and a document that is designed so that we can more biblically and more carefully choose elders. Secondly, starting in 2018, preachers are going to get Paid. Not a lot. Maybe we go get some grain. <laughs> but believe me, sermons take time. Even bad ones take time. But the good ones take a really long time. Don't don't uh, put me in a category now. <laughs> and we want to compensate preachers for the hours they spend many away from their biological families to serve this family. The main point of all this, all of what I'm saying here, is because Jesus is God, the church's response is to behave like a family, working hard, caring for one another. How the church should live this out is to be motivated by Jesus as they respect their various roles, holding one another to a godly standard, and rewarding one another for their faithfulness. I'll close with an exhortation to the Christian and the non-Christian. 
If you're a non-Christian, if you don't know the Lord today, I want you to know this. The church, when behaving correctly, is a picture of God who unites a broken family to himself and to one another through the work of Jesus. In short, we call you to be part of a heavenly family. And to the Christian, this church family is called to reflect God's standard of work and rewards in how we care for our family here. And our motivation is Jesus. Let us not settle for moralism or anything less. Let us cling to Jesus.